All right, well, a uh, quick commercial or we're gonna be here all night. I uh, wanna turn your attention to these cards that you see in your seats with the X on them. Everybody find one, grab one. You should have got it as you come, came in tonight. Um, no, we are not uh, endorsing the new Twitter logo. This is actually about an upcoming vision series that we're going to have on September the 10th. Let me hear you say September the 10th. September the 10th will be the most significant day to date in the life of our church. Coming up just two weeks from now, we are going to be rolling out a 10-year vision with 10 initiatives that are going to really communicate and clarify exactly who we are, exactly where we're going as a church. And so if you're looking for fresh vision for your life, if you're looking for what you want to give the whole of your life to, then you need to be here on September the 10th. It is a can't miss Sunday. Right now, if you're planning to be out of town, you need to cancel those plans, book a flight, get back in town to be here for September the 10th. There's somebody who you need to bring with you, a neighbor, a friend, a family member, a coworker, whatever name just popped into your mind. That was from the Holy Spirit. You you need to invite them, drag them, trick them, do whatever it takes to be here on September the 10th because it will be a can't miss, never forget kind of Sunday. So touch your neighbor real quick and say, see you there. Now, if you're not there, you just lied in the house of God, okay? So make sure to be there on September the 10th. All right, so we are in a season um, as a church studying this idea of awakening. Let me hear you say Awakening. And uh, for the last several weeks, we have been looking at this concept of what is an awakening. And in uh, week one, we said very clearly that we need an awakening. We talked about what an awakening is and how an awakening works. And we looked at awakenings that have happened throughout history. And then in week two, we looked at the great God of awakening. We studied Isaiah chapter six, and we looked as Isaiah woke up to a God who is holy, holy holy. And I pray that you will never see God as small or insignificant or as someone you can sleep on ever again. And then in week three, we looked at the story of Nicodemus, and we talked about this idea of waking up to new life. We talked about this idea of being born again, of leaving behind conventional cultural Christianity and waking up to the expansive, beautiful, infinite kingdom of God. Listen, Life tends to lull us to sleep, doesn't it? We get stuck on autopilot. We get caught in the current. We become spiritually lethargic. And I'm guilty too. I'm guilty of allowing the busyness and the inertia of life to rob from me the things that matter most. We fall asleep on faith. We fall asleep on life. We fall asleep on eternity. We fall asleep on the king of the universe. But throughout history, there have been these great outpourings of God's spirit. There have been these moments, these seasons where God has broken in and God has broken through and God has brought awakening. It happened at Pentecost. It happened during the Reformation. It happened during the Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening. It happened during the Businessman's Revival and the Hebrides Revival and the Moravian Revival and even recently at Asbury College. I actually have this resource on my computer that chronologically traces and tracks all of these awakenings that have happened throughout history. It just in detail describes the events of God's outpourings of these awakenings that have happened. And um, it catalogs and describes in detail 294 accounts of awakening. 294 accounts. Hey, Elevate City, we're praying that we're 295, amen? We're praying that God does something here in this space with these people that shakes history. At Elevate City, I just want for you to know, it's awakening or bust. It's something supernatural and unexplainable in our generation, or let's just take our ball and go home. We want to see God do something great. We refuse to just coast. We don't want to just sleepwalk through life. We want to push back against the spiritual zombie apocalypse that has come over the church today. We've got a dying world. We cannot have a sleepy church, amen? In Acts chapter two, we see like the OG awakening. Pentecost, the birth of the church, 
the first post-resurrection revival, the awakening that all other awakenings will follow. And it would be almost impossible to do a series on awakening and to not look at the awakening that happened at Pentecost. Tonight, I want to draw your attention to three very specific things that the people were awoken to at Pentecost. And I'm praying that God awakens us to these things tonight. And so if you're taking notes, these are the three things that I'm praying happened today. I'm praying, and this is what happened at Pentecost. They were awakened to the presence of God. They're awakened to the power of God. And they're awakened to the promise of God. And tonight I'm praying that, that happens in this place. I'm praying that you would wake up, that you would snap out of it, that you'd have an out-of-body experience and you'd really ask yourself, am I awake tonight to the presence of God? Am I awake tonight to the real power of God? And am, am I awake tonight to the promise that God has made? And um, in total transparency, most of our time tonight is gonna be spent on that first part, the presence of God. So as we're like 40 minutes into this thing and you're like, what about point number two, bro? Don't panic. We're gonna get there. Oh, tonight, oh, tonight, if you would really awaken to the presence of God. If tonight something would happen in your mind and in your heart and in your spirit, where you snapped out of the veil that's been pulled over your eyes by culture and by the enemy and by the enlightenment and by society and by the pace that you're living at, and you would wake up to the presence of God, what might change in your life? Did you know that the whole of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation can be summed up in three words? God with us. That's it. You wanna know the story of this book? Three words, God with us. From cover to cover, Eden to Revelation, that's the story of scripture. In Genesis chapter one, God created man and he put him in a garden called Eden so that man could be with God. And in Eden, our first parents, the first humans, Adam and Eve, they walked with God and they talked with God. They dwelled with God, they ate with God, they enjoyed God, they did life with God. But in Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve were seduced into believing the lie that life without God was possible, that life without God was potentially even better. So in Eden, mankind chose a piece of fruit over life in God's presence. And you and I have been making that same mistake ever since. You and I have been settling for trinkets and toys over life in the presence of God. We have chosen to pursue the stuff that God has made instead of the presence of God himself. And the whole of this story, oh, if you would know tonight, the whole of this story is about the presence of God chasing you down and inviting you back in, trying to woo your heart so that you would come back home. Eden is a picture of the presence of God. The promised land is a picture of the presence of God. The temple is a picture of the presence of God. The tabernacle is a picture of the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant, a picture of the presence of God. What's in the Ark of the Covenant is a picture of what you find when you step into the presence of God. The Psalms are songs sung from the present about the presence. The Proverbs are meditations from the present. The entire Old Testament is a story about a longing to enter into a presence. It's a drawing into the presence and it's a withdrawing from the presence. And all along, it's the presence of God chasing after people until he goes silent for 400 years. And for 400 years from Malachi to Matthew, there is just this silence. There's no movements. There's no awakenings. There's no outpourings of God's spirits. Just silent, waiting in the stillness. Until 2,000 years ago, Jesus shows up as Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the presence personified. God Edens among us again in Jesus. Jesus walks in our midst. He sits at our table. He takes on our sin and he dies in our place. A tree in Eden took us out of the presence of God and a tree on Calvary gets us back into the presence of God. You see, at the resurrection of Jesus, when he resurrects from the grave, he makes this statement. He says, it is not enough for me to just walk among you. I want to put my presence within you. Hello, Pentecost. 
Pentecost is the declaration that God doesn't want to just doesn't just want us to be in his presence. He wants to put his presence within us. Pentecost is the manifestation of the presence. This is where I really want for you to pay attention tonight. In the Old Testament, the presence of God showed up in types and figures. In the Old Testament, uh, God dwelled in temples and tabernacles. The spirit of God, which you should see synonymously with the presence of God, came upon people for a time in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament at Pentecost, the presence of God comes within people forever, forever. What happens at Pentecost is people wake up from the presence of God being something that is known about generally to something that is experienced personally. I'm gonna say that again tonight because this is my hope. This is my great longing. At Pentecost, people wake up from the presence of God being something that they know about generally to something that they experience personally. If you are a believer in God tonight, then you more than likely believe in the general idea of the presence of God. You came in here tonight, and if you've got any level of there being a God in the universe somewhere, then your conception of that God is, yeah, he's probably everywhere all of the time. Like he's omnipresent. And so what that means for your life practically, what that means for your life functionally, is that you shouldn't do bad stuff because God sees you all the time. Right, that's most people's functional definition and working understanding of the presence of God. Of uh, God's everywhere all the time, so I probably shouldn't look at porn, and I shouldn't hook up with my boyfriend, and I probably shouldn't cheat on my taxes because even if the IRS doesn't know, God knows. And that's most people's functional understanding of the presence of God. Is it not? Yeah, he's there. He sees me. But at Pentecost, something shifts. People awaken from this general sense of God's presence to the manifest sense of God's presence. And this is what happens at Pentecost. Are you ready for this? God's presence goes from distant to close. It goes from understood to experience. It goes from heard about to witnessed. It goes from somewhere up there to right down here, from something in my mind to something in my midst, from something reserved for priests and prophets to something available for all people. This shift happens at Pentecost. And I need you to know, you need this shift to happen in your life today. The church needs this shift to happen today. The world needs this to happen today. Not just a general intellectual awareness that God is there, but a real encounter with a living God. That's what you need to happen in your life today. You need an encounter with a living God where wind breaks in and fire falls and the foundation of the building shakes. I wanna show you what happened for them at Pentecost and that I'm praying happens for us. Let's get into the Bible. How about we? Acts chapter two, verse one says it like this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, when the day of Pentecost arrived, okay, here's what you need to know is before Acts chapter two, Pentecost, Pentecost was already a Jewish holiday. And so if you grew up like with Pentecostal roots, you just see Pentecostal like from a New Testament perspective. But those who it happened to, those Jewish believers, they saw it from an Old Testament perspective. Uh, Pentecost was the second major festival of the Israelite liturgical calendar. It was also called the Feast of the Weeks or Shavat in the Hebrew. It was also... Um, more precisely called the Feast of Seven Weeks because what they did is they took the day of Passover and they counted seven weeks from there and then one day later. And so it was 49 days plus one, seven weeks, the Feast of the Weeks. And then on that 50th day, they celebrated Pentecost. And so Pentecost literally just means 50th. So a lot of people think Pentecostal means this. No, it just means 50, okay? And I think that's one of the reasons that people actually raise their hands in Pentecostal church because they're just like 50, 50, 50, 50. They don't even know what they're doing. But Pentecost just literally means 50. But 
the, the whole idea of Pentecost for the Jewish people, for, for ancient Jews, there was this idea of 50. It became this picture of the time that they waited for God in the wilderness. Are you tracking with this? Waiting is a big picture of Pentecost. The whole festival has to do with this idea of waiting, of really, really waiting. So what are they doing in Acts chapter two in the upper room? They are waiting. There's this festival that the whole meaning of it has to do with these 50 days of waiting, this time in the wilderness where they're longing for God to lead them into the promised land. And so in the midst of that very festival, they're in the upper room and they're waiting on God to show up. And can I just say tonight, that we so often want the awakening at the end of Acts chapter two, but we don't want to do the waiting that happens at the beginning of Acts chapter two. Most of you, look right at me tonight. You are way too busy to ever experience the manifest presence of God. I'm gonna say that again, and I want it to send shockwaves through your life, and I want it to disrupt your calendar. Most of you, the thing that you're longing to have happen in your heart tonight, like you're starting to sense it, like something's building, like if this encounter is, is real, if wind could rush in, if fire could fall, if the foundation could shake, if I could see something that transcended reality, I want it. I want for you to know you are way too busy to ever experience it. The presence of God in this way only belongs to those who will wait long enough to experience it. You are way too busy your life is way too loud. You are way too rushed, way too frantic. You have too much commotion. The walls will never shake if you don't enter the upper room first and wait. I need you to know that it's not that we don't have enough time in our lives or enough time in our schedules. It's just that we spend our time on the wrong things. If the world has enough time, to watch 3.6 billion minutes of the hit TV show Suits, then I think you got enough time to read a psalm. Harvey will understand, okay? It is not that we don't have enough time. It is just that we spend our time on the wrong things. If you only want God on your timeline and inside your calendar, then you don't want God, you want to be God. You want to determine how this works. You want to let God fit into your life as opposed to letting him be the Lord over your life. The presence of God does not belong to those who try and pencil him in. It belongs to those who wait until he comes and knows that they are hopeless if he does not. Create space in your life. Everything comes down to how busy we are before you reach for your phone in the morning or you jump on the Peloton or you look at the news or you check the stock market, sit with him, upper room with him, be with him. If you don't know how to do this, then I just want for you to know every Monday, a group of men gather in this space at 6 a.m. to be with the Lord for an hour. And so if you don't know how to do it, we'll see you tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. We'll show you how. And on Wednesday morning, a group of women gather at 6 a.m. for one purpose, to just be with the Lord. And if you don't know how to do that, show up on Wednesday morning and we'll show you how. Excuses are off the table now. Clear your calendar, learn this practice, or you'll never experience the presence of the Lord. Acts chapter two, verse one, part two. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. I want for you to underline, highlight all together in one place. At this moment, every single Christian on planet earth is present. Try to hold that idea in your mind. There's nobody at a different church or at a different gathering. Every single person who believes that Jesus is the Messiah is in the room at this moment. After all of the crowds gathered to hear Jesus teach on the mountain and after thousands upon thousands came out to witness the miracles and after the mobs of people chanted crucify him and after the entire city came out to watch it happen, there's only 120 left. That's it. Only 120 people still holding on. You know what this communicates to us? The presence belongs to those who persevere. Yeah. 
The presence belongs to those who persevere. Listen, I want for you to know that God is going to do a great work. The question is only whether or not you will still be here when he does. Like we may be on our fourth location at Elevate City and it may take us 40 more till we find home. But one day, one day when we get there, I wonder how many of you will just get washed out in the crowds as opposed to being expectant in the upper room. The next point that I wanna draw your attention to is if you don't think place and people matter when it comes to the presence of God, you are sadly mistaken. You are sadly mistaken. God's presence can break in anywhere and at any time, but there are certain places and certain times that God tends to show up most. And it is always when people gather for the singular purpose of encountering him. God is found amongst his people. Let me say that again. God is found amongst his people. His people who say, we want you, we are here for you, we are longing for you, we are hungry for you, we are desperate for you. God comes where he is wanted. People who just want to get through a church service, people who just want to check a religious box, rarely experience the presence of God. Acts chapter two, verse two. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now this is what you've got to see happening. Pentecost, there are two major things happening at Pentecost. Pentecost is the reversal of Babel and it's the echo of Sinai. Pentecost is the reversal of Babel and it is the echo of Sinai. If you remember the story, in the Old Testament, people think that human progress and ingenuity can build our way to God. This is the story of Babel. And this is a story that many people are still building their personal Babels today. And it doesn't work. We think that if we achieve enough, if we progress enough, if we get far enough in our career, if we get enough money in our bank account, if we grow our stocks big enough, if we grow our platform large enough, if we check enough boxes off of our bucket list, then somehow we're gonna have this transcendent experience with God. We're gonna know what life is actually about. And building your own Babel never works. And so at Babel in the Old Testament, God frustrates language. God divides the people. He tears down the tower, the tower and he scatters the nations. Because what God is saying at Babel is there's no way for you to get to me through yourselves. I am coming to you through my spirit and through my son. And so Pentecost is the reversal of Babel. It's what happens not when we build ourselves up, but when the spirit of God comes down. Watch this. At Babel, languages get confused and become a barrier. At Pentecost, language becomes transcendent and supernaturally connects. At Babel, people are torn down and divided. At Pentecost, people are unified and built up in an upper room. At Babel, the nations are scattered. At Pentecost, all the nations are gathered together. And I wanna say this, what happens in the presence of God is things start to get reversed. Things start to get reversed. Things get redeemed in his presence. The past gets made new in his presence. The script gets flipped in his presence. Singleness that was a burden becomes a blessing in the presence of God. The lost job becomes the beginning of a calling in the presence of God. The dark night of the soul becomes the flame that guides your life in the presence of God. Things get reversed in his presence. But Pentecost is not just a reverser of Babel. Pentecost is an echo of Sinai. You see, Pentecost is this corporate picture of what Moses personally experienced on the mountain that day. If you remember the story, over time, Pentecost in the Old Testament came to be celebrated as the anniversary feast of the giving of the law to Moses on Sinai. From the time that Moses and the Israelites left Egypt to the time that Moses went up on Mount Sinai was approximately 40 days. And then Moses is up on Sinai for how long? You guessed it, 10 days. And so at the end of 50 days, Moses comes down from this mountain. He receives the law and he's got this law engraved on tablets written by the finger of God. So think about this. The same day, that Jews from all over the world 
have gathered in this city to celebrate and remember the giving of God's Torah on tablets of stone, the Holy Spirit comes down and he writes his Torah on people's hearts. Think about this. Sinai happened 50 days after sacrificing the Passover lamb in Egypt. Acts chapter two, Pentecost happened 50 days after Jesus, our Passover lamb was sacrificed. On Sinai, wind and smoke and voices and fire cover a mountain. At Pentecost, wind fills the room, people speak in tongues and everyone gets a flame on their heads. When Moses was on Mount Sinai, people were worshiping the golden calf. And so when he came down from Sinai, 3,000 people died for the punishment of their sins. At Pentecost, 3,000 people get saved when the Holy Spirit shows up. It is this reversal of Babel, and it is this echo of Sinai. It is this conscious shift that happens in the people from viewing what happens in the presence of God as something that just happens to one man to being something that can happen to every person in every place at every time. Pentecost is God showing us that he is actually in the room. I wanna use this illustration for a second. It's one thing to have a millionaire in the room of church. It's another thing for that millionaire to text GIVE to 777-888. You know what I'm talking about tonight? It's one thing for him to be in the room. It's another thing for him to let you know that he's in the room. At Pentecost, God goes, hey, you know that I'm in the room, but I wanna let you know that I'm in the room. I want for you to experience it. I want for you to taste it. At Pentecost, the distant fire on a mountain becomes a personal flame over people's heads. What happened in a distant way now happens in a personal way. It's this conscious shift from acknowledging the theological reality of the presence of God to beginning to experience the reality of the presence of God. It's where this general idea becomes this radical place of encounter. I love the way that this happens in the story of Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal. Blaise was a child prodigy. He was raised by a tax collector. And Blaise became a mathematician, a scientist, a physicist, and a philosopher. And he's credited with pioneering public transportation as we know it today. Blaise was primarily concerned with worldly things, that which could be explained with words and numbers and patterns. But in 1654, something happened to Blaise that has been described as a mystical fire. He got born again. He had known generally about God up to this point. He was raised around the church, but he had an encounter with God that marked him forever. And I, I love what happens. Blaise is this intellectual. He's this thinker. He's this very cerebral guy. He's someone who's not given to experience or to emotion. He thinks deeply about things, but something happens to him one night. And I just love the way that words and sequential thought just begin to fail this brilliant man, this cerebral, verbal guy. He is describing something from a different world, a word, a world beyond words, a world beyond logic. His account of what happened to him one night um, got sewn into the lining of his cloak. Nobody actually knew about this account in his life or that he even carried this around until he died and somebody found this account that happened to him sewn into his jacket pocket. And it was as if he sewn it next to his heart so that it wouldn't just become this thing that he remembered from boyhood, but this thing that he treasured and believed could happen every single day. This is what it says. I love this. The year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd, November, feast of St. Clement. From about half past 10 at night until about half past midnight. So for two hours, this guy is caught up in something that feels a lot like Pentecost. This is how he describes it. Fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, 
God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Your God be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. Grandeur of the human soul. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. I've departed from him. They have forsaken me. The fount of living water. My God, will you leave me? Let me not be separated from him forever. This is eternal life that they know that they may know you, the one true God and the only one that you sent, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. I left him, I fled, renounced, crucified. Let me never be separated from him. He is only kept securely by the ways taught in the gospel, renunciation, total and sweet, complete submission to Jesus Christ, eternal and joy for a day's exercise on the earth. May I not forget your words, amen. Like, what is that? <laughs> That is something that's like an out-of-body experience where somebody who sits around all days doing trigonometry starts like thinking in tongues. Like all of a sudden he's got this out-of-body experience. Do you know why? Because something that he'd heard about generally became personal for him. Because the fire fell, because heaven invaded, and because for two hours he was willing to wait on it. He was willing to persevere through it. He was willing to experience the presence of God. And I just want for you to know that this is the presence that is available. This isn't something that just happened in the Bible to a couple of apostles in first century Jerusalem. This is what happened to a random trigonometry driven mathematician in the middle of the night. And it can happen to you too. The presence of God changes the atmosphere. You know when he is there and you know when he is not. When he shows up, it is undeniable. And when he is absent, it is unbearable. No one wants a church without the presence of God. Like a church without the presence of God is a church without life. I love what Richard Owen Roberts says. He says this, he says, the sobering truth is that the greatest hindrance to the growth of Christianity in today's world is the absence of the manifest presence of God from the church. Like I want for you to imagine being a skeptic to Christianity, being somebody who doubted that God was real and showing up to the place where the people of God met, but not finding God there. Finding some like karaoke, finding a TED talk for 11 minutes but not finding the presence, not meeting with God, not waiting on him. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was at the center of the camp. And so if you don't know about the tabernacle, this is the place where God's presence dwelled before they made it into the promised land and they had a place to call home. And so they're a nomadic people and they take this tent and they set it up in the middle of the camp and then everybody else camps out around the tabernacle. And this tent is where the presence of God dwelled. And all of the Israelites' tents were facing towards the tabernacle. And no person in the camp would actually ever turn their back towards the tabernacle. It was this idea that I'm always looking towards the, the presence. It was this idea that life revolved around the presence. And likewise, the church is supposed to be set up the same way. The church of Jesus Christ is not supposed to revolve around programs or productions or personalities. It's supposed to revolve around the presence. The presence of Jesus is supposed to be at the center of everything that we do. Like if we're not meeting with God, if we're not encountering with God, what are we even doing here? It's supposed to be about the presence. In the Old Testament, Moses says, if your presence doesn't go up with us, we will not leave. He says, how else will the nations know that we are you, your people? Moses knows that the secret that the people of God have. Their secret weapon is the presence of God. And if we don't have it, people will see right through it. The presence of God is what sets us apart as his people on planet earth. Acts chapter two, verse 12 says this. 
It says, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked, saying they are filled with new wine. You see, the presence has this strange ability. Don't miss this tonight, because some of you are already feeling it. The presence can do two things simultaneously. The presence of God has the ability to repel people and draw them in all at the same time. Some of you, you won't understand this tonight. You will scoff. Others of you, you will wonder, what happens next? Where do we go from here? And luckily, the apostle Peter does not leave us guessing. He addresses the scoffers and he activates the curious. Acts chapter two, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This is Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You see, this presence-based encounter leads to power to do the mission. This presence-based encounter leads to power to do the mission. Blaise Pascal, following that experience, would pick up his pen and write what Peter Kreft calls the greatest book of Christian apologetics ever written. It's called Christianity for Modern Pagans, the Penzies of Blaise Pascal. The apostle Peter, following this presence encounter in the upper room, goes from denying that he knew Jesus to a teenage girl, to standing up in that same city and preaching the least seeker-sensitive sermon that has ever been preached in the history of mankind. Hey, this Jesus whom you killed, by the way. Imagine that sermon being preached in today's churches. Welcome to church, so glad that you're here. By the way, you're on the hook for killing God. It's not gonna go over real well, but that's the sermon that Peter preaches, and he preaches it unapologetically. He declares to the religious leaders, you killed the Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified, you killed God. And I just wonder, like, what happened to Peter? Did he get a pep talk? Did he wake up with some Folgers in his cup? What happened to Peter? I'm convinced that Peter didn't just start eating kale or he didn't practice meditation or he didn't change his morning rhythm. I'm convinced that Peter encountered the presence of God. And that the presence of God gave Peter transcendent power that changed everything. Power to stand up, power to speak truth, power to connect the, do the dots of the Old Testament to the life of Jesus, power to say to the scoffers and the doubter, you're a bunch of murderers. Power to not let culture call the kingdom weird and cave in. Power to be okay with what he doesn't understand. Power to embrace the supernatural. You see, standing in the majesty of God, the world starts to get really small and the kingdom starts to get really big. And that's exactly what happens to Peter. I believe today that God is going to move in places and in people who aren't ashamed of the word, who aren't ashamed of the presence, who aren't ashamed of the spirit, who aren't ashamed of Jesus and who are not ashamed of the power. So what happens all throughout the book of Acts? Can I just tell you real quick what this, what this presence and what this power leads to? This power leads to about 3,000 people added to the church in Acts 2.41. It adds to people being converted every day in Acts 2.43. It, it, it leads to 5,000 being added in Acts 4.4, to crowds of both men and women being brought to the Lord in Acts 5.14, to many of the Jewish priests being converted in Acts 6.7, to the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria becoming stronger and growing in numbers in Acts 9, a large number of Gentiles turning to the Lord's in Acts 11, the 
word of God spreading and uh, many new believers in Acts 12, many disciples made in Acts 14, the church growing larger every day in Acts 16, a great multitude joining Paul and Silas in Acts 17, the story spreading quickly and many becoming believers in Acts 19 and many thousands of Jews believing in Acts 21. And what began in Acts chapter two with 120 people in an upper room has become a worldwide movement of over 1.6 billion people today. And it happened because the presence changes you. The presence transforms you. The presence shifts your priorities and your perceptions. One moment in his presence can change a nation. One encounter can change the trajectory of a city and it can shake human history. Acts chapter four, verse 14 says this, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The presence of God is something that produces power. And it is something that is supernatural. It is something that is hard for us to wrap our enlightened Western minds around. But here's what happens. When you've really encountered the presence of God, you don't have to explain the presence. The presence explains you. People recognize they've been with Jesus. Something's happened in their life. This isn't, this isn't rote. This isn't just scripted. This isn't, this isn't technique. This isn't power. This isn't leadership skills. This isn't systems. This isn't Instagram. This is, this is the presence. This is the power of God. They didn't see in Peter and in John eloquent speech or effective strategy. They recognized that these men had been with Jesus. And I just know today that we have been online and we have been in the news and we have been on Instagram, but so few of us have been with Jesus. And I think that's the reason that so few of us see the power of God in our lives. Because we haven't experienced the truth and the power and the reality of his presence. And I need you to know tonight that you're not smart enough or talented enough or gifted enough, but his presence is more than enough. The presence of God is your unfair advantage in the world around you. For three years, the disciples learned that everywhere Jesus' presence is, his power comes. Just think about this for a second. Think about the stories that they encountered. For three years, they saw this happen. So you might wanna invite Jesus to your wedding because if he's present at your wedding, he turns water into wine. You might wanna invite Jesus to your funeral because if Jesus is present, funeral processions get stopped in their tracks and the widow's son gets up. You might wanna invite Jesus into your boat because if Jesus is present, a miraculous catch can happen. You might wanna invite Jesus to your well, whatever it is in the middle of the day, because he might just show you right there that he is the Messiah you've been longing for. Invite Jesus into every circumstance. Open your hands to the reality of his presence and see the power that comes. Listen, we have hit a moment in Christian history where the world doesn't care how good church is if God is not there. The world doesn't care about the lights. They don't care about the show. They don't care how polished we are. They don't care how creative we are. They don't care how good our songs are. If the presence isn't there, then they don't want it. They're not interested in it. Charles Finney, who was a leading revivalist in the Great Awakening. He said, if the presence of God is in the church, the church will draw the world in. But if the presence of God is not in the church, the world will draw the church out. And I believe that's what's happened. Over the last 20 years, people have gotten entertained to death and we have put on really great shows and really great productions that have been very empty of the presence of God. And we wonder why the people have left the building and it's because the presence has left the building. If God doesn't fill our churches, no one will care. 
You can have incredible programs and incredible production and incredible preaching, but if God isn't there, all you got is a TED Talk, and I can get that wearing my pajamas, lying in bed, watching YouTube, and eating Doritos. Thank you very much. But if the presence of God is there, then it's worth every second of my life. Acts 2.37 says this, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says, I think this is a good time to do an altar call. Verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. Then they were added that day about 3000 souls. So we talked tonight about the presence. We've talked tonight about the power. And tonight I wanna tell you the promise. I wanna tell you the promise that God makes to you, the promise that God makes to me, the promise that God makes to our children, and the, God, the promise that God makes to all who are far off. This promise started in Eden. And this promise was that God will crush the head of the serpent beneath his feet. This promise was that no weapon formed against you will prosper. This promise was made to Abraham that God will bless your family and make your name great and that you will be a blessing and that all the families of the earth will be blessed by you. And this promise now falls in your lap too. This promise that was made to Moses on the mountain, this promise that was made to Jonah beneath the sea, this promise that was made to Daniel in the lion's den, this promise that was made to Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in a fiery furnace, and this promise that was made to David in a field when he faced a giant now extends to you. And this promise is that you and I can have as much of God as we want. This promise is that God will be with you. He will go before you. He will hem you in from behind. This promise is that God will fill you, that supernatural power will go wherever you go, that the impossible is possible, that signs and wonders are real, that resurrection power is available, that the kingdom is here and that it cannot be shaken. And this promise is for you. This promise is not just for priests. This promise is not just for pastors. This promise is not just for the learned. This promise is not just for the intellectual. This promise is for you. But the key, the key tonight that unlocks this promise is repentance. It's repentance. Everyone wants the presence. Everyone wants the power. So few want, long for, are desperate for repentance. I want for you to know that it doesn't matter what you've done in your past. It doesn't matter what your family of origin is. It doesn't matter what gender you are or what race you are. It doesn't matter whether or not you're Jewish. It doesn't matter how far off you are or how far off you feel. It could feel like you are a million miles away from this tonight. But for all who will repent, the promise is that he will come near. If you study any period of revival, there is always this great focus on repentance. It's always in the spotlight. We tend to have this very glorified view of revival. It's times of joy and growth and glory. And all of that is there, yes, but that's only a part of the story. Before the glory and the joy break in, conviction and repentance break up the ground. There are always tears of godly sorrow. There are always wrongs to be put right, secret things to be thrown out, hidden things to be revealed. And if we are not prevailed, if we are not prepared for this, then we are not prepared for an awakening. J. Lee Grady says it like this. He says that the Welsh revival was marked by a profound characteristic. He said, waves of conviction drew people towards repentance. He said, often sinners wandered into the meetings and immediately knelt at the altars. 
there was this spirit that started to fill the places of meeting where it was so clear that God was there that a preacher didn't need to preach for people to take a step towards repentance. They walked in the door and they made a beeline for the altar. W. Graham Scrooge, whose name I do not envy, said this. He said that there's never been a spiritual revival which did not begin with an acute sense of sin. We are never prepared for a spiritual advance until we see the necessity of getting rid of that which has been hindering it. And that in God's sight is sin. Alf Redpath put it this way. He said, if you want revival, let me remind you that God only plants the seed of his life in soil which has been broken up by repentance. Stephen Hill says this, he says, one of the prominent characteristics of this fresh move of the Holy Spirit is brokenness and tears. C.S. Lewis, who's the only one of these people who you've probably ever heard about, says the real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see, you, see, you see yourself as small, dirty object. You see, the power that you receive will never exceed the repentance that you walk in. The writings of C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Great Divorce, The Problem of Pain have shaken the world. C.S. Lewis's secretary said about him, he's the most converted man that I know. AKA, he's a man of repentance. I believe that C.S. Lewis's measure of impact was connected to the measure of repentance that he walked in, and I believe that yours will be too. Jonathan Edwards said it like this, a man who knows that he lives in sin against God will not be inclined to come daily into the presence of God. I bet as you look at that scripture right now, it sends a lightning bolt through the lack of quiet time in your life. A man who knows that he lives in sin against God will not become will not be inclined to come daily into the presence of God. And if you do not come daily into the presence of God, you will not experience the, the power of God. And without the power of God, you will not wake this generation up to the greatness of Jesus Christ. The promise of his presence and his power are available, but you won't take part in it without repentance. I want for you to know, I believe with everything in me that God is going to wake a generation. I believe that awakening is coming again in our day. I believe that people are tired. I believe that they are frustrated. I believe that they are fed up with the games of religion. I believe that just setting up and playing church and going through the motions, just people are done with that. And something is starting to break. Something is starting to shift in the atmosphere of Christianity where I believe that an awakening is coming. Do you know about what happened at Asbury College? Did you guys hear about this a couple of months ago? Was this on your radar? Check out this picture of what happened at Asbury College. Recently, Asbury College experienced 14 days of awakening. There was for nonstop, 24 seven, seven days of the week, two days, two weeks in a row, 14 days consecutively, this is what the auditorium looked like. People came from all over the world. The altar was flooded. Repentance was taking place. Hearts were breaking. Worship was profound. Literally, people booked flights and they flew to Wilmore, Kentucky. I don't know if you've been to anywhere in Kentucky. It ain't much to look at, but Wilmore might be the worst. And people got on airplanes from all over the world to just go and experience what was happening at Asbury. People said about this awakening, this encounter of what happened at Asbury, they said that being there, it was as if a veil was pulled back. And listen to this tonight, you didn't know whether or not you were in heaven or on earth. Like what? They're there and they're just, they said that there would be these, you know, incredible, just out like these choruses that people would just sing and it would just sound like 
the waters of the ocean were just roaring. And then there would be these moments of silence where you could hear a pin drop and nobody moved. Nobody was checking their phones. Nobody was shifting in their seats. Nobody was worrying about where they had to get to next. They knew that this was something that was supernatural, that heaven was invading earth and that this is like what life was ultimately about. And for 14 days, that's what it looked like. And I think that's the image that so many of us have in our minds when we think about awakening, presence, power. But do you know how it started? Let me show you not the last picture of the Asbury Revival. Let me show you the first picture of the Asbury Revival. This is how it started. You see, it was at a normal chapel service where a speaker got up and he preached a message. And at the end of that message, he texted his wife discouraged as most preachers feel when they walk off the stage. Preached another stinker today, babe. But at the end of that sermon, the spirit of God broke through into people's hearts. And just a handful of college students overcome by their sin, grieved by their unholiness before a God who is holy, 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 made their way down to an altar. And they started looking at each other and they just started confessing. They took things that were in secret and they brought them into the light. And they started to change their mind about their priorities. And they started to change their mind about what was significant in their life. And that's what repentance means. It means to change your mind. And they started to confess out loud to one another their great need for Jesus and their wickedness and their vile and their sin before a holy God and their desperate need for him and saying, I'm done with my old life. I want new life. I'm done with worldliness. I want holiness. I'm done with shallowness. I want depth. And they just started to repent at an altar. Repentance brought the presence and the presence brought the power and the power brought more repentance and the presence brought more of his presence and it just happened over and over and over and over again and some 30 college campuses had outpourings or awakenings like this that filled out of Asbury and I believe that it's just the beginning. I believe that what happened there can happen here. If God can do it in Wilmore, Kentucky, he can do it in Atlanta, Georgia. But if he's gonna do it, it's not gonna start with just an epic song or an epic sermon. It's gonna start with people who say it's time for repentance and who say I'm desperate for his presence and who say I don't wanna do life in my own strength. I need his power. So come Holy Spirit. Fire fall, heaven invade, consume everything. I'm so tired of hearing stories about the past. I'm so, so sick and tired of looking at these 294 accounts of the revival. And don't get me long, wrong. I love it. I love it. It's created this well within me, this deep reservoir of like knowing what's possible and knowing what's available but I don't wanna just read about history. I wanna live history. I really believe that if one dad tonight, if one mom tonight, if one neighbor, one student would wake up to the presence of God, that the world might never be the same. I believe that we owe the next generation an encounter with the living God. It's not enough to just give them fancy church services and big productions and more lights. It's not enough to just trick them into coming to church with ploys and Instagram ads. It's not enough to just give them some slick polished church service driven by metrics in a curated top 40 worship set. It's not enough. They need a real living building, shaking, wind, rushing, fire, falling, encounter with the living God. Something that makes them ask, what does this mean? And that make, makes others declare, you must be drunk. 
but then makes that generation speak up and say, we've not lost our minds, we have found it. Jesus is the pearl of great price. He is the hidden treasure in the field. He is worthy of giving up everything I have if only I may be found in him. Oh, would you awaken to his presence tonight? Come Holy Spirit, let's pray. So this altar is gonna be open and I'll be here. And if you wanna come and give your life to Jesus, if you wanna confess and repent and ask for salvation, come on. And if you wanna come and ask for healing, you come. And if you've got a sin that needs to be repented of because it's keeping you out of his presence, you come. And if you've got a, a relationship that needs to be reconciled, then you come. If you've got darkness that needs to come to light, you come. If you're tired of cold, dead religion and you are desperate for a taste of his presence, then you come. Holy Spirit, only you can do it.